After hundreds of interviews and thousands of hours of research, we're excited to share with you our first book, The Greater Good, Life Lessons from Hawaii's Leaders, with a special forward from Mayor Mufi Hanneman. The Greater Good is a collection of personal stories and quotes from over 70 of the leaders we've interviewed. The Greater Good will make you laugh, make you cry, and will inspire you to live a greater good life. Available at bookstores statewide and at greatergoodbooks.com. Tonight is December 5, 2005. This is Evan's Journal coming to you live from Honolulu, Hawaii. Tonight's journal is not going to really have any updates. I just came back from, well, actually I came back a while ago from the lecture slash panel with Guy Kawasaki, who's the CEO of Garage Technology Ventures. The panel was at University of Hawaii in the Architecture Building, and Guy was invited by Bill Richardson, who is a professor at UH and also a venture capitalist with HMS Hawaii Management Partners. And what I wanted to do was to play the audio from tonight for you, and you guys can get a chance to hear it. I know it's a bit longer, but... I think it's definitely worth it. He has a different perspective, somewhat controversial, but nonetheless, it's uh, somewhat entertaining. Okay, the audio quality I need to mention to you is not very good. The audio quality is from my handheld Ederol R1 with the internal microphone. So basically, I was sitting in the front row and recording this, and most of the recording was coming off the speakers. So I did what I could to it, but if it sounds too bad for you to listen to, Maybe just don't listen to it. Okay, so here it is, Guy Kawasaki. As a book of scientific, of public, and number of others. Bill's a graduate of UC Santa Barbara and Duke University School of Law. And also like to really thank uh, Bill for arranging uh, Guy to come here and also all the splendid teaching he's been, done, been doing for us over the years. So thank you, Bill. Um, next, I would like to introduce his sidekick up here tonight, uh, Guy Kawasaki. Uh, Guy is Managing Director of Garage Technology Ventures, uh, which is an early stage, stage venture capital firm <coughs> and a columnist with Forbes.com. Previously, he was an Apple uh, Fellow at Apple Computer, where he's one of the people responsible for the success of the Macintosh computer. Uh, Guy was also born and raised in Hawaii, and from there he went off to uh, Stanford University and then received his MBA at uh, UCLA. Uh, then, like uh, most smart kids of that era, Guy was very anxious to conquer the world, and in the late 80s, the computer bug hit him he was uh, worked very hard with uh, Apple introducing the Macintosh to software hardware developers. And it's a history with Guy Kawasaki. Uh, today, Guy is the author of eight books, including The Art of the Start, uh, Rules for Revolutionaries, How to Drive the Competition Crazy, Selling the Dream, and the Macintosh Way. So please join me in welcoming Bill Richardson and Guy Kawasaki. So um, let me just give you a little bit of background. Um, I uh, recruited Guy to come join my class that, um, that I was discussing with me early, and we thought we'd try to open it up to as many students as possible. 
but I do have one restriction. I'm going to try and limit the questions to my class <laughs> today, and I apologize for that, but we, we are limited in time. So, um, without, should, should we talk about Iolani football, or should we do that? Well, since Iolani is a championship of its division. <laughs> I thought it was a small school. Isn't Iolani like a small school? Small like Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I have a running dialogue on YouTube and all the alumni, so I, he went to a school. And I, but I, what I what I understand is they really raised their entry requirements since guys did. <laughs> so let's start with a very broad question. What's the next big thing? You know, Bill, uh, in a rare moment of humility, uh, let me tell you that I have no idea what the next big thing is. And I would further generalize that to say that most venture capitalists, because I'm a venture capitalist in the country, they don't have a clue what the next big thing is. Um, the people who do have an idea what the next big thing is are generally young people, students uh, in engineering schools, in business schools, and they have these ideas job of a venture capitalist to make calculated gambles on them and place bets on them. But I've never seen a situation where a venture capitalist says, okay, I know that the next thing will be this, therefore let me find a team to deliver on this next big thing. It's always a situation where two guys in a garage, or two gals in a garage, or a guy and a gal in a garage come to a venture capitalist and say, we believe that the next big thing is a new kind of search engine, a new kind of router, a new kind of software package. And they have to convince the skeptical venture capitalists that sometimes they are successful and sometimes they're not in raising money. And if, for the ones that are successful in raising money, some of them are in turn successful in actually building a company and doing a great thing. So um, this is a long answer to tell you that I don't know what it is because my role is to make calculated bets on people who I think do know what it is. I'm 51 years old, and ages as this may seem, I'll tell you that I fundamentally believe that anyone over 35 is going to have a much harder time becoming a technology entrepreneur. Because people over 35, you know, very pragmatically, you have children, you have families, you have mortgages, you have cars. You also have a great deal of knowledge. You know how hard it is to do things. So one of the beauties of youth is that ignorance is not only bliss, ignorance is empowering. And most of you don't know how hard it would be to introduce a new personal computer. I know. And so I will never do it again. <laughs> Whereas you don't know, you think it's easy. So sometimes not knowing something is a powerful thing. And uh, as you get older and older, you know more and more. You know, your, your knowledge is increasing, but your energy is decreasing. So uh, it's, you people probably know more than I do. It's my job to bet on some of you. So a uh, humble venture capitalist, boy, that's a hard one. Yeah, that's an oxymoron. <laughs> So let's talk about the whole championship. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the people then. So what kind of people are you looking for? Well, this is another softball question. So the typical venture capitalist answer is we want a proven team of entrepreneurs. And proven to, a, to proven to a venture capitalist means that the person has started another company before, created another company before, 
successful exit uh, with an IPO or an M&A uh, transaction. Um, you'd like a team that's proven as scientists who have won Nobel Prizes. Uh, you want a team that has successfully shown their ability to raise money. So that's sort of the dream team, you know? So us small venture capitalists don't ever see those guys. No, but I don't think those people exist. <laughs> um, and, and so the reality is that it's funding a venture capital deal and picking a team is a lot like falling in love. Okay, so if you fall in love, well, we'll take, I have to be very careful when I make these analogies. <laughs> Let's say that you fall in love and you fall in love with a man and you're a woman. And you <laughs> not go there. Um, so you fall in love with a man, and he has two teenage, let's say four teenage children. Okay. So if you fall in love with this man, some people may tell you, you are nuts. You're going to get married to someone, and instantly you're going to have four kids to have to deal with. Other people will tell you, if you're in love, you're in love, and you'll learn how to deal with it, and it could be the most valuable part of your relationship that you, in fact, have an instant family, and you're surrounded by this great Ohana kind of thing, right? So the point I'm trying to make is, as a venture capitalist, when you fall in love with a team, you tell yourself, okay, so they're not, they're not professional managers, they don't have experience, they've never taken a company public, but I love the team. And as a venture capitalist, I can provide them insights, I can provide them coaching, I can even provide them with recruiting to find adult supervision for the team. On the other hand, taking the same team, if you don't fall in love with the team, you would just write them off by saying, too young, too inexperienced, inadequate background, insufficient knowledge of the industry. So the, the key question is, does the venture capitalist fall in love? Because if the venture capitalist falls in love, then you will start, in your mind, compromising and figuring out ways to make it work as opposed to why you should rationally reject the deal. So the long and the short of it is, you know, if someone asks me what is the richest vein for a high-tech entrepreneur fundable deal that will change the world, like Google or Cisco or Yahoo, I would say two PhD students from an engineering school who are willing to drop out of their engineering program in order to start a new company and, and they're creating the product that they themselves want to use. And that would not pass the test of most venture capitalists because most venture capitalists say those two students have never run anything more complex than a lemonade stand. How could they possibly run a company? So we've talked about this before, you know, the, the MBA students are like law, first year law students, it's a little bit dangerous and mostly they get in the way of great science. So what, are, what, what kind of advice do you have for MBAs? How many MBAs are there in this office? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I've had a lot of lawyers. God has a lot of sympathy. I have an MBA also. Uh, what, I, what I would tell you is that Things that was you know, more the science of management. 
And at the same time, I assumed that what was easy, and therefore I did not have to study or examine, would be the social psychology, the organization behavior, all the soft and fuzzy stuff. So I studied all the OR and all the finance and all that kind of stuff, and I just did none of the OB kind of stuff, the social psychology, because I said to myself, you know, when I'm a manager, I am going to be a wonderful manager. I'm going to talk to my people. I'm going to find out what their individual goals and needs are. I'm going to help them self-actualize what their goals and needs are. I'm going to help chart their careers. I'm going to be this wonderful person. And so that's easy. Now, fast forward a few years into the actual you know, career of mine, I find out that the finance stuff is very easy. You can hire financial people to crank the spreadsheets and the checkbooks and the accounting. That's easy. Frankly, the only finance that you as an MBA needs to know is this. Take this down. Write this down. If your cost of goods sold is a dollar, okay, your cost of goods sold is a dollar, and you sell it for five dollars, if you believe that your gross margin is only 20%, you will always be rich. Think about that. That's all you need to know. Make it for a buck, sell it for five bucks, and believe you only have a 20% gross margin. You will always win. That's the only, you can throw away your HB12s right now. <laughs> okay. That, and so, so what you end up is, in a startup, the hard part is not the finance. That's the easy part. Um, the, the, the operations research is easy. The law is easy. You hire lawyers, you know, they're like, you know. Diamond does Diamond does just like, you know, dentists, orthodontists, and lawyers. They're all, you know, you just pay for them. It's easy. The hard part is holding the team together. The hard part is managing the team. The hard part is focusing the team. The hard part is figuring out who's good on the team, who's bad, what are they good and bad at. It's all the social psychology. All the organization behavior, all the stuff that I thought would be easy was hard. And all the stuff that I thought was hard, I found out you could hire. So my advice to you is study the soft stuff. Because that's the hard stuff. And start hanging around the engineering school and the medical yeah. school. So let's drill down on that a little bit. So one of the questions I got was, um, how come the U.S. keeps falling behind the tech trend in Asia? Says who they falling behind the tech? What tech trends of Asia are we falling behind? That's a good question. What are we falling behind? Or are we not falling behind? Well, okay, so if you were to make that case, you would say that Korea has a lot better cellular phone system. Korea has a lot better broadband to the house or apartment. Um, so Korea and you know some Southeast Asians have Countries have better cellular phones and better, better cellular phones, better wireless, period, right? Um, but so, yes, maybe a Joe Blow American in Appalachia is behind someone in you know, Joe Kim in Sills in Seoul. All right, I can teach you that. But what the real question is, is not um, who's got better broadband and a cell phone package, as much as who's creating the innovation. And I would make the case, you know, everybody's afraid that all the innovation is going to go off to Bangalore, or all the innovation is going to go off to Asia. The problem with that is that um, 
right now, the way they position themselves, they're trying to they're trying to say that we have very smart, good programmers who can execute according to your engineering documents. So it is a form of, shall I say, labor. It's just intellectual labor. The true test, and, and so in the cases where you have entrepreneurs in Asia, they are almost always saying, well, I want to be the Google of Asia. I want to be the Shutterfly of Asia. I want to be the eBay of Asia. I want to be the Cisco of Asia. I want to be the Microsoft of Asia. I want to be the Apple of Asia. Because they want to be the fast second. They want to copy some other American idea, typically. That's not the test. And for you in Hawaii, you should not want to say, I want to be the Google of Hawaii. That's not the test. The test is that you create something here, or if you're in Asia, that you create something in China. That people at Stanford University say, I want to be the XYZ of America. So the goal is not to be the fast copy of an American idea. The goal is to be a great new idea that America tries to copy. That's what you should shoot for. That's how hard you should shoot. Well, we, you know, we've, we've had this discussion many times before, Guy, about Hawaii being sort of a provincial place and, and, and whether or not they can grow up and, and sort of look at global markets. What would you suggest that young MBA students or law students um, start looking for to create a new Hawaii? Well, see, luckily I have no political aspirations. There you go. <laughs> um, I think one thing, here are some thoughts for you. Uh, first of all, after you complete your education here, I would move to the mainland. It could be mainland USA, it could be mainland China, it could be mainland Korea, I don't care, but move. Move because I think you need to have your horizons expanded. That if you are born here and educated here and you live the rest of your lives here, you will never know how big the world is. You will never know how big the scope of dreams are. And, and so you, you need to go to Silicon Valley and you need to like drive past Larry Ellison's $26 million house. And you need to look at that house and say that house was built on software. And you need to drive past you know, Apple computers, 50 buildings, and you know, this huge campus. And you need to say, you know, two guys in a garage built that. And no, I suppose right now you could drive past Steve Case's house here and say, wow, you know, America Online we built Steve Case's house. But I think you need to see you know, what can be done with technology and entrepreneurship. And you need to be put in a place where that's tested. I mean, to use another analogy, let's say there's a film school at the University of Hawaii. And I don't know if there is or there is, but let's say there is. And so you are the most promising film producer and director at the University of Hawaii. Well, guess what? You've got to go to LA. It's just the way it is. If you truly want to know how great you can be, you have to go to LA. So, um, now, people get, people get all bent out of shape when I say something like this because they say, oh, it's the brain drain. You know, you're encouraging Hawaii's best and brightest to leave Hawaii. They might never come back. Well, it's true, they might never come back. I will never come back. But you know, a lot of my classmates didn't come back. And and even if I okay, so let's suppose that I never come back. 
And let's say that you know Steve Case only came back after he was done. Do you think it would be better if Steve Case and I had never left Hawaii? I don't think so, because I certainly would have not accomplished what I did at Apple, because I mean, there was no platform here to do that, right? I mean, I, you know, I could, I could, what would I do if I had stayed here? So I'd be running the Hilton Hawaiian Village. I don't know what I would do. Um, so I think you need to broaden your horizons. And, and, and that would be my first piece of advice. Well, we got two uh, sons of prominent politicians sitting up here, and none of us, uh, we, we, we tend to say what we think, so we're never going to be successful politicians. <laughs> what about tax policy? Have you been looking at some of the... Uh, uh, tax policy is bullshit. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, so you're talking about the thing where you feel invest and then you get a credit and you know, whatever, right? Yep. This is the thing that makes movies? Yep. Okay. Um, you know, I, I think that it's a, I mean, I suppose it could generate some interesting things, but when you are an investor, as we are, we don't look at a, uh, at a deal and say, boy, because of the tax policy involved, we can deduct our losses. <laughs> you know, that just like never comes up in the conversation. So the way it really works is we want to put a million dollars into you and we want to get 20 million back. Okay, so maybe we're off by a factor of two. Let's get 10 back. So we either want 10 or 20 or we lose the whole thing. And it's not because we put in a million and we get a million dollar write-off that we're doing that. We're not trying to be tax efficient. We're trying to, actually, we want tax problems. My greatest joy would be I made 10 million in capital gains, and now I have to pay tax. Do you know what a quality problem that is? I dream about that problem. I dream about that problem. And so, I guess it is a way for the government to do something. Um, I, I think, you know, I think the most important thing that the government could do for, to support entrepreneurship in Hawaii is to support schools of education that, you know what, I mean, I would like to know that there's one Bill Gates and there's one Steve Case in this audience, and it's, it will be because you were educated. And it may, it, you know, I, I happen to focus on the engineering program. I think, you know, people all over the world ask me, well, how can we repeat Silicon Valley? And the answer to that question is how to repeat Silicon Valley is not a tax break. Okay. The answer is, you've, you produce a world-class school of engineering. You don't have to fly venture capitalists in. You don't have to make corporate attorneys move here. You don't have to get advertising and PR. You don't have to build the infrastructure. You just get a world-class school of engineering. Because when you get a world-class school of engineering, you'll get world-class students. And world-class students are not going to be content to running hotels and restaurants. They are going to want to be the next Googles. So when you have these kinds of students who are trying to be the next Google, Googles, trust me when I tell you, one thing you can depend on with venture capitalists is greed. 
So as soon as the venture capital world was figured out, my God, the University of Hawaii School of Engineering is producing people who are Google, Yahoo, and Cisco quality entrepreneurs. Trust me when I tell you, we will be flooding into Honolulu. And, and so the question, now, it seems to me that, you know, sometimes everything lines up. And so not only is, is that a doable thing, I think it's an easy thing to do because it's got to be true that rather than spending $25 million on tax credits, I, I would say if you could empower the University of Hawaii to go and recruit at Carnegie Mellon, MIT, and Stanford, and Harvard, anytime between November and February, how hard could it be? How hard could it be for you to go to MIT when it's 10 below zero and say to an assistant professor, you could be teaching right now in Honolulu, Hawaii, there is a net 90 degree difference. <laughs> yes, the cost of living is high, but the cost of living in Boston is also high. And we can pay more than MIT because our governor has decided that we're going to create a great technology business and we're investing in professors. And you only need about 10 or 20 of them, right? And this is, sounds to me like everything I just mentioned still comes up to less than the tax program. So that's what I would do. I would just get them. I would just start grading engineering schools and get the best professors here. How hard could that be? You know, it's one thing to tell for a professor to go home and tell a spouse, you know, honey, we're moving from, I don't know, we're moving from Stanford to Boston because MIT made me an offer. I think that's a very hard discussion. I think it's a very easy discussion to say, honey, we're going to move because I accept the professorship at the University of Hawaii. How hard could that be? <laughs> that's, that's a piece of cake. So that's what I would do. So I don't say that just because uh, David McLean is in the audience. I really <laughs> key to entrepreneurship in Hawaii is the University of Hawaii. Here, here. I mean, I, I talk to my blue in the face about tax policies and policies being a detriment, but such is life. So let's let's move on to uh, I think a subject of interest for some of the other some of the students here, the, the idea of social entrepreneurship. And one of the questions that I got was, well, how can we use social entrepreneurship sort of policy ideas to address affordable housing or, or social concepts like that? Wow, um, I, can, I can only relate to some of my experiences. I'm on the board of a parachurch organization based in Hawaii called Hawaii Arms Ministry. I'm also on the board of my kids of the Sori School in Palo Alto. So I'm on four for-profit boards and two not-for-profit boards. And the, the board meetings and the challenges that those organizations face I think they are more similar than they are different. And, and most of you are reading or have read The Art of the Start. Um, everything in that book is applicable to a not-for-profit. I mean, you have to position, you have to brand, you have to create a mantra for that organization. You have to pitch for money, you have to find people who donate that sales. It's very, very similar. And I think that um, I think that a not-for-profit social entrepreneur 
should look at it as if it's quote unquote a business. And the, the fundamental question you have to answer for yourself is the business model. Now, if you're a church, you know, some churches believe that their business model is let us bow our heads together in prayer. That is not a viable business model. Whether you're a church or an environmental group or mothers against drunk driving or preventing the abuse of spouses or children or you know, whatever is saving the whales, um, you have to think a metaphorical basis. Who is my customer? And how do I get my money out of her purse? In other words, your money is temporarily in your customer's wallet. How do you get that money out of that wallet? Whether you're a router company, or a hardware company, or a not-for-profit. Your money, how do you get it out of that wallet? That's the question you have to answer. But most not-for-profits don't look at it that way. Like they're waiting for, you know, karma, kumbaya, act of God, I don't know what it is. lot of people going after that wallet. So you have to take that wallet. That wallet is yours. You should believe in your heart. But that money in that wallet is yours. It's temporary in your customer's pocket. Now you guys are all annoyed saying, man, it's a Machiavellian, <laughs> evil kind of person. Questions? There in the mic class. So for those of us who are going to ignore your advice and stay in Hawaii, uh, what, uh, do you have any suggestions? Take my advice. No, <laughs> not going to happen. So, assuming, assuming we come from somewhere else, we have the broad vision, uh, so that's not an issue. Okay. Um, so we can, we want to be the next Google and not the Google of Hawaii. Okay. Um, do you know, do you know Peter Kay? Who Peter Kay is? Okay, he's a, he's a local entrepreneur who just started a thing. He says that Hawaii requires a fundamentally different kind of venture capital firm that the, the big venture capitalists like you are not going to come here and give $20 million to a startup. So really you've got to think small um, and go for, a, for a, a, a very quick growth up to acquisition phase as opposed to becoming, say, a Google. Okay. So uh, do you think that's the way to go or do you really just think it can't be done here? Well, you know, why, did everybody hear that question? <laughs> um, how do you paraphrase that question? <laughs> uh, I, would, I would put it in this form. You're, you're familiar with John Dean's startup capital ventures, right? And he's looking for software companies that um, are looking in the range of half a million to two million dollars to get them to profitability and acquisition in software. Do you think that model works in Hawaii? How do you paraphrase? So the, the, the company would be acquired at Right. That, that's, you know, he's looking for the 5x instead of the 20x, and he's looking for a, a low capital um, requirement software type company that has the, let's use, uh, was it Affinity, the, the, the um, eHarmony, which was a very successful sort of buyout. Uh, but, you know, I think John Dean's theory is valid anywhere, and that even in the valley, there are people who want to do that kind of deal. Not, every, not everything can be a Google. Um, although I'll, I'll give you a slight differentiation there. You know, we only know that Google's Google because Google's Google. Okay? This is sort of a tautology. Um, everybody at the start of a, of a firm 
or not everybody, but most people who start a firm should believe they are the next Google. It's just that 99.9% .9 of them fail to achieve that level, and 1.1% 1, 1 do achieve that goal. Uh, but if you start off saying we're nothing but a small little bit significant company that maybe we can get acquired someday, then you know that's like just that's not the entrepreneurial way. You gotta believe you're gonna be the next Google. And if you fail, then you're nothing. And you're not the next Google. But if you succeed, you pull it off. And so, you know, it's it's. I, I, I hesitate to tell you that you know if you're in Hawaii, just try to build a couple million dollar company all you can be and be happy because that sucks. I mean, that, you know, that's <laughs> what you can do that. Look, this is a self-fulfilling prophecy. This is be like, you know, saying that if you're from Hawaii, you could never play in the NFL. I mean, clearly that's what we're supposed to do. Many times, right? So, so you, you, see, that's why you should sometimes not attend these things because you don't know this. See, you, you gotta. I just, I just like I'm begging you, praying, I'm praying for you. Think big, just go for it. And even if you fail, so what? Um, because you know, the crime of it is, if you could have been the next Google, you never tried because you listen to people and they said, you know, you're from Hawaii. All you can do is a couple of million dollars. Uh, um, it's. No, <laughs> oh, sorry. Uh, so, so yeah, okay, so we're in this scenario that you're not going to leave Hawaii. Okay. Now, I, I'm not suggesting that you have to leave Hawaii to get your eyes open. I'm just suggesting that one of the most obvious ways to me of getting your eyes open would be to leave Hawaii. So let's say you just, for whatever reason, you can't leave Hawaii. I'm still telling you to dream big. I'm still telling you to dream big. Because, you know what? Uh, It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and it gets to be a slipperier, a slipperier slope in a positive sense. Because if one of you dreams big and creates, you know, like, I don't know, a digital island or something like that, right, then at least you have a local hero. Like right now, if you had a local hero, you might say, oh yeah, Steve Case is my local hero. The Dunamo boy went on to found a multi-billion dollar corporation in Roosevelt. You know, just the, the highest level of East Coast aristocracy of money and power and fame, right? That's my hero. The problem with that hero is that he did all of that stuff on the mainland. So, you know, it, it kind of says, if I want to be the next Steve Case, I have to move. What you need to do, for all of Hawaii is you need a few people who stayed here and made it huge. Because then you could have you know the Steve Case kind of hero and you could have a local boy kind of hero who didn't have to move. That would be ideal. So some of you have to try that because you know, the, the reason why Silicon Valley took off, well, my interpretation is, okay, so first there was uh, Hewlett and Packard. Hewlett and Packard, they started in a little garage, and then they became this huge success. And then there was the semiconductor group, right? So, you know, national semiconductor stuff. And they started in garages, and they became huge successes. So now, in the fabric of Silicon Valley, we always say, geez, you know, we could be the next Packard, we could be the next Hewlett, we could be the next Noyce, we could be the next 
machine, we might not know all these names. We could be the next Intel. We could be, and then so people of that generation aspire to be, you know, Dave Packard and, and Bill Hewitt, right? And so, and then they become, some of them become the Nolan Bushnells and the Steve Jobs and the Steve Wozniaks. Then the next generation says, oh, we want to be the next Steve Jobs. And so that might be the Jerry Yangs who created Yahoo. And then the next generation says, we want to be the next Jerry Yangs. And that could be Larry and Sergey from Google. So now, Larry and Sergey are these huge heroes for everybody. It's all happening in Silicon Valley. And so now there are 18-year-olds who are thinking, I want to be bigger than Larry and Sergey at Google. And so what happened is, because of Bill and Dave, they set into motion this thing where we were heroes, and then the next generation hero, next generation hero, next generation hero. So it just keeps on going. We've got to start the hero process here. Because once it goes, it, it sort of fulfills, it keeps going, it keeps fulfilling itself. So we need heroes, not tax laws. <laughs> we need heroes. And I think the heroes come from the schools. So, you know, God, we, we talk about passion all the time in my class, and um, you clearly have passion, but how do you recognize that in an entrepreneur? Well, um, it's, 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 so the situation is an entrepreneur shows up with his or her product, and you're trying to figure out if the person is passionate about it. Well, I tell you, if you have to sit there and ask yourself the question, the answer is no. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, this, this should not be a hard box to check. Uh, now, it may be different where you are the founder and you're trying to figure out if a newly recruited employee or a new potential recruit is passionate. That's harder to do. But, my God, if the founder doesn't show up believing that this product is going to change the world, you might as well punt right there. Um, just give it up. Um, because you know, a founder sets the DNA of the company. The founder doesn't believe. Now, now, don't get me wrong. You don't have to be a Jerry Maguire, shuck and jive kind of guy. Um, you can be passionate in a very quiet way. But you have to believe. And, and, but if, if you're sitting there asking yourself, is this founder passionate? Then you already have your answer. You already have your answer. So my advice would be don't go to a, don't go to a, a potential funder, funding source for your company if you don't absolutely believe in your company. Absolutely right. I mean, you, when you go to a funding source, you have to believe in your heart that if you were on the opposite side of the table, you would give the money. And so if you go to the opposite side, if you're like not sure you want to do this, uh, we get this all the time actually, but it's, don't think it's, it's unusual. We get these you know, entrepreneurs and they come in and they have this plan to do, you know, X, Y, Z product. And then, and then they pitch us and we say no. And then six months later, they come back and they say, well, you know, we gave up on that idea. We couldn't get it funded. But now we have another idea. You know what? That's an instant no. Because, so what are you trying to tell us? We give an attention span of six months. And if we give you the money, you'll stick it out for six months. But after that, you'll find another idea. I don't, want, I don't want an entrepreneur who comes up with a plethora of different ideas. I'm not looking for fountains of ideas. 
I'm looking for someone who has one idea and is going to lay his life down to make that idea successful. If that person has to eat, you know, soy sauce and rice for the rest of his life to do it, that's the kind of person I want. I don't want someone who's like idea du jour. That person is useless. That person, by definition, doesn't have passion. Right? Isn't that lost in an everyday? What? <laughs> <laughs> the same definition? The person who has somebody else's idea of no passion? No. <laughs> we have to instill that in our MBAs that are lost in it. Not necessarily. Questions? Why can't we take questions for everybody? Yeah, no, anybody, please. <laughs> The uh, companies that you're mentioning are all tech-related. Are there any non-tech-related fields that uh, bear any interest? Well, um, you have to understand that you're asking a technology venture capitalist. So you know, if you were asking a retail venture capitalist, that person would be talking about banana republic or the gap, right? So, uh, but yeah, I mean, there are plenty of opportunities. What, what you have to understand, though, just to save yourself some time and aggravation, is that generally speaking, a venture capitalist wants to put money into any kind of thing, any kind of entity, whether it's a restaurant or retail or, or software, that within five to seven years could be doing a hundred or hundred and twenty million dollars in business. And what many people don't understand is the difference between fundable and viable. So there are many viable businesses. You could start a you know a new Japanese restaurant. It could be viable. You could start a new web design consulting firm, and that would be viable. You could start an advertising firm, that would be viable. A PR firm, that would be viable. You could start a lot of viable companies, but they are not VC deals. Because it's extremely hard to imagine that in five years, a PR company, a web design company, a restaurant, or a retail clothing store could be doing $100 million. That's the game we play. It's not the game for everybody, but that's the game we play. So it's just inappropriate if you have an idea for a new kind of you know wax for a surfboard. It could be you could have the best wax for a surfboard ever. And you might be doing five million dollars a year with it selling this new kind of surfboard wax and you can get fantastic success. But you're not a venture capital deal. We want things that are going to do a hundred million dollars. And without us having to be on you know on methamphetamines to believe that. You need to be in a sober state, you need to kind of be able to believe that you can do $100 million in a problem. It sounds like those are the ones that are in the competition. I don't know, what's the question? You're talking about the business scope competition? Probably. I, I, I don't know who the guests, who the judges are, so I, you know, there, there are different categories in that competition, so I'm not sure I know the answer to that. I mean, I would not assume it. I mean, Typically, a business school competition, it depends. It depends if, they're, 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 if it's for the best pitch or for the best you know, business. There's a difference. Because you could do a great pitch for a stupid business. And you could be a, you know, you could do a stupid pitch for a great business. Um, but I never, ever confuse fundable with viable. Because a fundable deal is, in the eyes of the venture capitalist, potentially $100 million. Whereas a viable deal, you could be doing $2 million a year and be extremely profitable and viable. So just don't confuse the two. 